Life's pathway can be complicated, unpredictable, and sometimes even dark. As we consider and apply God's word to our day-to-day -day situations, thinking biblically provides the wise direction we need to navigate life. At McGregor, we don't just look to the Bible for information, but for transformation as we learn to think biblically together. I rarely ever preach three times in the morning. This, in fact, might be the first, so it's going down in my diary as a major achievement. But I'm glad to be with you this morning. And um, I was saying to the people in the other two services that part of my joy on this occasion is uh, being with the actual congregation that meets here regularly. It's been my second conference, um, founders conference that has happened here and it's been, it was glorious, it was a real joy being with uh, everyone that was here from different parts of the city, different parts of the state, different parts of the world. But I always find that little extra um, when I now meet with the actual people that frequent the auditorium and raise the praises of God from their lips. So I am glad to, to meet uh, with you. Uh, in, again, one of the previous services, I met quite a number of people, uh, in between the services rather, who've been to my neck of the woods, uh, Zambia. Uh, by the way, a lot of people make that mistake about Zambia and Zimbabwe, because uh, Zimbabwe is a little more in the news. Zambia is a very quiet, peaceful country. There's hardly anything to write about it in the media. So that tends to uh, put Zimbabwe a little bit more on people's lips, even when Zambia is written right in front of them there. <laughs> yeah. But uh, it's good to know that a number of you have visited our part of the world. You have seen one of the seven natural wonders of the world for which we are grateful to God that has gifted it to us and also the uh, wildlife that is still very much there. Well, brethren, in coming to you today, I'd like to draw your attention to Titus and chapter 3. Titus chapter 3. And I'm basically answering the question, why should Christians be different? Why should we expect it to be so? And um, I'll be reading, or rather preaching, from Titus 3, verse 3, down to verse 7. Although to begin with, I will, for the purpose of minute context, begin reading from uh, verse 1. So if you are there, allow me to begin reading. Titus 3, beginning with verse 1. Remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work, 
to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, and to show perfect courtesy toward all people. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us. Not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. And then verse 8, to just wrap up the immediate context. The saying is trustworthy. And I want you to insist on these things. So that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. These things are excellent and profitable for people. Well, as I've already said, I want us to just think together about why God should expect us who are Christians to be different from the people, the environment, especially the moral culture that is there around us. When our Savior was on earth, he, he spoke of those that he would recreate as those who would be salt and light in the world. Clearly showing that the world will be in darkness and his people will stand out like bright stars in the midst of a pitch black midnight sky. And even when Paul writes to Titus, who was functioning as a, a pastor on the island of Crete while Paul uh, had to immediately go away, you can't miss the fact that this was a major burden that Paul had. That the believers on this island should be different from everybody else. And so for instance, in chapter one, as he is dealing with the appointment of uh, uh, leaders, elders to be more specific, this is the way he said these elders should be. For instance, in verse nine, he says, he, referring to those who'd be appointed as elders, must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine. And then he says, and also to rebuke those who contradict it. That that person who's an elder should be so concerned about the truth 
and the way in which people live according to the truth that he would be jealous enough to rebuke those who are seeking to live differently. In terms of the environment in which this church was, towards the end of chapter one, the, the Apostle Paul mentions, or at least quotes, one of the, the pro- prophets in Crete, who said in verse, um, verse 12, that Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. What a description. This is not something that is coming out of uh, Paul's spite for the people in Crete. He's quoting one of them. And all he does is to say, this testimony is true. In fact, it goes on to say that even those who were religious, their lives would be the exact opposite of that which they ought to be living. It says in verse 16, they profess to know God, chapter 1, verse 16, but they deny him by their works. They are detestable, disobedient, unfit for any good work. So that's the culture, the environment both secular and religious, that the church was being planted in. And Paul wants believers to be different. And so as he comes into chapter 2, he is saying to Titus, but as for you, Titus, teach what accords with sound doctrine. He's not saying teach sound doctrine, he takes that for granted. But what he's saying is teach sound doctrine, but also teach a life that aligns with sound doctrine. That the theology of the people will be sound and their lives will be sound as well. That's really the burden of the Apostle Paul as he opens uh, this letter to Titus. And so he says there in verse 2 that Titus is to teach older men to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, and so on. And Titus is to teach older women likewise to be reverent in behavior and so forth. So that they can teach the younger women, he says, um, what is good so that they may love their husbands and children. He goes on to speak about what Titus is to teach the younger men in verse 6. He says, likewise, urge the younger men to be self-controlled. What about the slaves or the um, bond servants? He says in verse 9, bond servants are to be submissive to their own masters in everything. They must be different, Paul is saying. The question I want us to answer is the, the question why? Why should this be the case? And I want to suggest to you, it's, the answer is found in our text. And it's, it's because of what God has done in making people Christians. 
that this is not just a profession that we take on, on our shoulders, but it's a complete change that takes place in our hearts. God transforms us. Therefore, it is only reasonable, it is only logical that we who are Christians should be different. And the way the Apostle Paul does it in our text is by starting with the way in which we were before we were converted. We've already read that, but let me read it again. In verse 3, it speaks about the, the hopeless enslavement that was there. It says, for we ourselves were once in this way. We were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. There's a, a logical flaw in Paul's thoughts beginning with the thinking, the mind, when he says, we too were once foolish. We, we lacked wisdom. We, we, we failed to analyze circumstances in our lives and take actions bearing in mind the, the ultimate consequence of those actions. No, we're not doing that. We, we lacked that capacity. Instead, we were foolish. The result of that is inevitable rebellion. And that's what he goes on to speak about here. We were disobedient. Anything to do with law and rule, anything to do with submission, we didn't care. What we wanted was that we should have our own way. Now once that becomes the case, concerning any individuals, they become prey to being led astray. Led astray by those who are teaching what their itching ears want to hear but also led astray by their own fallen nature. That which their hearts want to have done is what they end up doing without thinking of the ultimate consequences. And so Paul says there that led astray slaves to various passions and pleasures. That which our fallen hearts are after, that's what drove us in our fallen estate. What's the result of that? Well, he says there that community becomes well nigh impossible. Passing our days in malice and envy. In other words, pouring dirt upon other people and then wanting to grab from them that which rightfully belongs to them but which we want now for ourselves. 
Inevitably, as Paul ends the description there, we end up being hated by other people and we end up hating them. Isn't that a description of our world? That's exactly the world we live in. A world which is lacking in love, in care for others, in selflessness. A world that is full of sin. The Apostle Paul is literally describing that kind of world. There's a preacher who once said that the evidence of sin is simply the keys that we carry in our pockets. It shows we can't trust our neighbors. And those neighbors are not lions. They are not tigers. They are fellow human beings. But because they are sinners, we have to protect ourselves, we have to protect our family, we have to protect our property, we have to protect so much from fellow human beings. Why? It's not the culture that we are brought up in that makes us what we are. It's not the kind of philosophy or education that we are coming from. It's not, it's not merely our environment that cultures us that way. According to the Bible, it is our hearts. The heart is sinful and therefore inevitably it becomes a sin factory. It produces sin. Or oh, to borrow the words of our Lord Jesus Christ, a bad tree cannot produce good fruit. It can't. Its root is rotten. Therefore, it will produce fruit that is rotten. That's the explanation of our world. And what it obviously means is that it's hopeless to think that the world will somehow change itself, transform itself by some kind of educational process because it's the heart which is lost. It's the heart which is sinful. It's the heart which is rotten. The only hope for our world is if the heart can be changed. And thankfully, that's what has happened to the Christian as the Apostle Paul goes on to speak about that in the following verse. Look at this, verse four. Verse four. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us. Not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy. By the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior. 
about it this way. If you look at that text, I hope you will notice that the active agent is not ourselves. We are being acted upon. So the one who's introduced here is God. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, He saved us. I've already said that with respect to the Christian faith, we are not saying to people that they should improve themselves. That they, that they should somehow just change the way in which they are behaving. Because they can't. Rather, we point to a God who has come into the world to save sinners. That's the only hope that we have. That the one who created the universe is the one who now recreates us. He makes us new. And therefore, it doesn't matter how wicked and sinful you may be. This omnipotent God is able to save. In fact, when you take a closer look at our passage here that we just read, you will notice that it's, it's speaking about God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. God the Father is introduced this way. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, He saved us. Reminds me of the words of John 3.16. That for God so loved the world that he gave his only son. This father is a God who saves. And he does it not because we have attracted his attention towards ourselves by our deeds, good deeds, Paul here says, not at all. Not because of works done by us in righteousness. That's not what moves God to save us. What is it that moves him? It is, as Paul says, the goodness, the loving kindness of God our Savior who saves us according to his own mercy. In other words, our hope lies in the fact that the God who is seated on the throne of the entire universe is a good God. Amen. He's a loving God. He's a merciful God. And as we shall see a little later, He's a gracious God. And that's why He saves us when we come to him just as we are. You don't need to first of all go and try and clean up your entire background, your entire house and, and sort out your life and then come to him and say, can you now? No. You come with all your mess. He's a good God. But we also bring in the son, as we notice in verse six, 
whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior. And the point that is being made there is that Jesus laid a foundation that enables the Father to save us in real time. And what is it? It was through his death on Calvary. Our Savior was God and man who then lived a perfectly righteous life so that death had absolutely no claim on him. And having lived that perfectly righteous life, he sets aside that righteousness and takes upon himself our sin. And therefore, as he dies on that cross, it is not for any sin that he has committed. Zero. It is because of our sin that God now punishes his son in our place. Having satisfied divine justice, satisfied divine righteousness, Jesus rises from the dead, goes to the Father, and receives from him the promised Holy Spirit, whom he now sends into the world to save sinners. Well, let's really move on to the work of the Holy Spirit then. We read there that we are saved according to his own mercy, verse 5, second part, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. The phrase there is quite simple. There is a washing. There is a renewal. There is a being made new. And that's why we should be different. We are made different by the Holy Spirit who cleanses us from the inside out. And how does he do it? By the new birth. We are born anew. We are born again. I became a Christian in 1979 and in those days it was one of the, the, the famous phrases flying around. You must be born again. And it used to drive people in, up the wall in anger. Because so many people back home have grown up in church. They, they've been baptized, they, they're in church membership in one way or the other, especially through parental lineage. But they just assume I must be a Christian. And so to be told that you are not a Christian unless you are born again used to upset a lot of people. And just to be a, a very common phrase, I'm reminded of uh, the 18th century evangelist, uh, George Whitfield, who was very fond 
of preaching within the context of the Church of England, where again, there were a lot of religious people, but he was very fond of preaching, you must be born again. That just to drive people mad. In fact, one individual challenged him and said, Mr. Whitfield, Mr. Whitfield, why are you always preaching that you must be born again? And he replied, saying, because you must be born again. And it's true. There is no other way to enter into a relationship with God and finally enter into heaven. People don't go to heaven in sort of first class and, and, and business class and, and, and then economy class so that we can say, well, me at least, uh, I'll, I'll be content with economy class. <laughs> you're either born again or you're still on your way to hell. Amen. It's the only way. And that's what Paul is saying here. That this is the way he saved us. Not because of works we have done, but because of his mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. A real change taking place within. Talking about those early days of my Christian life when we used to sing, great day when I was born again and would speak in terms of the things that I loved that I don't love anymore. The things that at one time I despised, now I really love. The things of God, prayer, his word, the fellowship of believers, and these same commands that are here, submission, obedience, Readiness for every good work. Speaking that which is truth rather than evil. Avoiding quarreling, being gentle, and so on. All those things have now become my meat and my drink. Let me ask, has this happened to you yet? What have you known about this Great change from within, transformed by the power of God. Well, Paul doesn't end there. He quickly adds the fact of our eternal relationship that is the ambience in which these good works are being lived out. And he puts it this way in verse 7. So that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. What is he saying there? Let me put it this way to you. That what Paul is saying is, is that believers, true Christians, they live their lives, this life of 
uprightness and godliness and, and, and righteousness and, and good works. They live that life not because they are hoping that if they do so, God will accept them and God will bring them into heaven. Rather, it is because he has accepted them and is taking them to heaven that they then live out that kind of life. In other words, they do so out of gratitude. They do so with joy. God, thank you that you've been so good to me. And therefore, they want to be good to others. It is because they are already justified. That's the point he's making there. Being already justified by his grace. Having therefore this eternal hope. A Christian is not somebody who is sort of hoping that, you know, after he's done so many good things, God will sort of put his, his good works on this side and his bad works on this side and hopefully it will go and God will say, you are lucky, come in. No. That's not the Christian. The Christian is one who knows that God has taken Christ's righteousness and put it into my account. Therefore, he treats me as though I was as righteous as his own son. And therefore, my hope for heaven is secured. 100%. Amen. And so, out of love, joy, and gratitude, I want to live for him. That's it. So to the question, why should Christians be different? It's because God has made them different. He's changed us. And therefore, as we are in that society, in that world, and we are mingling, we are able to say, but for the grace of God, that's what I was. But I'm no longer that. God has changed me uh, through the power of his spirit. This is the new me. And that's the reason why I am different. Let me ask you, as I hurry on to close, does this describe you? Are you able to say, I was once like that. Then I came to God in Christ, just as I was, pleading for his salvation based on the finished work of Christ on the cross. And he saved me. He changed me from the inside out. Is that your honest testimony. If it isn't, allow me to end with this plea that you go to Christ 
I'm not asking you to go home and start cleaning up your old life. I'm saying, go to Christ. Come to him just as you are. Pleading with him, Savior, Savior, while on others thou art calling, do not pass me by. Or to borrow the words of Augustus Top Lady, I come to you empty hands and I cling only to that cross as my only hope. Nothing in my hands I bring, simply to thy cross I cling. Will you not come to this Christ in this way today and experience this change from the inside out that will make you different out there in the world? Do so today.